Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. John 20, there's a story that is just, it's, it, it's a detail more than it is a story. We know the story. We've heard the story. But it's a detail that I think is really pertinent to us. And so I'm going to read uh, in John 20. We're going to start in verse 1. And if you're not familiar with the context, I'm just going to tell you that Three days before this moment, the Lord of heaven and earth, the King of kings, the Son of God, the pure and spotless Lamb, was crucified to fulfill the Father's will to get us back. He was crucified on a cross and taking with him all the guilt and all the sin and all the shame of this world. And so he goes to the grave, his followers, after he breathes his last breath, his followers, his disciples take him down and they lay him to rest in a borrowed tomb. And I love that, again, details. One of my favorite ones is that it's a borrowed tomb. You know, you borrow something when you know you're not going to need it forever. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I don't need a tomb for very long. I need like a, I need like an Airbnb tomb. (laughs) You know, I don't want to stay here. I'm just resting. <laughs> and, uh, and so he's laid to rest. Most folks think, pretty much everybody, even those who were faithfully following him, believe it's over. It's finished. Because that makes sense. That's common sense. And so he's wrapped in grave clothes, and he's left in this tomb. And, and the, the, the Sanhedrin and the Roman soldiers come together, and they make this decision. Listen. These people, his followers, they're so radical. They're so zealous that what they're going to do, they're going to go in and, and steal him. And they're going to say he came alive. They're going to weekend at Bernie's this thing. And, and they're, and they're going to tell everybody, no, he did come alive. And it's going to be all smoke and mirrors. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to seal it. We're going to roll a giant stone in front of it. And we're going to put soldiers outside to stand guard. Now, what we know is that when three days time that the power of God was too much for that tomb. That stone was rolled away and that the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the Son of God came out of that grave and has never gone back in. And so what's awesome is that at that point, just like we were saying, Mary goes early Sunday morning, uh, not really knowing how she's gonna get this stone out of the way, but going with things to anoint him and to, you know, just she, she just longed to be in his presence, even when she thought he couldn't do anything for her anymore. Doesn't that tell you something about the passion of those who walked with him? And I believe it's the same today. I believe that even it, for, for folks who are truly, madly, and deeply in love with Jesus, we will go and be in his presence, even when it's not about getting stuff done for ourselves, even when it's not about just getting prayers answered, right? right? And so she goes... And, uh, and she finds the tomb empty. And, uh, and what she, she's told when she, Jesus reveals himself to her, he was disguised as the gardener. And I love that story, too. Again, details. I, my mind, I don't know about you guys, but when you're reading scripture and there are things left out, I'm thinking, where was the real gardener at this point? And I want to believe that he was tied up in a garden shed somewhere. <laughs> And here's Jesus with the glasses, with the nose and the mustache, and like a really bad fake accent. 
And, uh, and, and so Mary doesn't get it. She's all just sad until he says her name and she comes alive and she realizes that Jesus was standing here with her. And when he says, go back and tell the disciples, that's right where we're picking up. Chapter 20, verse 19. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he says. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. Okay. Details. Details. He shows them the wounds. Now, probably we're thinking, this can't be Jesus. This is Jesus' twin brother that nobody knew he had. What's he doing here? But the proof is the scars. He shows them his scars. And as I read this, I can't help but think that Jesus, at this point in my mind, should not have the scars. Jesus walked through this execution, this death, this burial, and on the other side of this thing, there should be, if he left his grave clothes behind, why the scars? Why does he still have the scars? If after three days he can be supernaturally raised from the dead, surely they could have like lasered away those ugly scars somewhere in the process. There's some plastic surgeon in heaven that can take care of stuff like that, right? If the grave really lost the victory, saints, and if death really lost the sting, and if Satan really lost the war, why didn't Jesus lose the scars? Not only here, but again, as you keep reading, this story unfolds and he shows back up uh, eight days later to Thomas. Now it's a group and Thomas is there because Thomas is struggling. He's doubting. He's saying, no way, until I touch those scars, until I see him with my own eyes. And he shows back up and he does it again. Not only here, but there again. And this is Jesus in his glorified as in like walk through walls kind of state, and yet into that glorified state, he brings with him the scars. So I wanna talk for a few minutes this morning about scars, about the Lord's scars and about our scars. First, we have to ask, what even is a scar? And I uh, promise you that I'm not going to wow you with all of my medical and scientific expertise, even though it's amazing. I did a lot of research on this, Um, but I'm just going to give you the nutshell version, and it's important that we understand this. For a working definition, a scar is the last step and the final result of the healing process. A scar is the last step and the final result in the healing process. When we've been wounded, saints, the Lord desires to bring us through a healing process. Now, we love a good, miraculous, immediate, supernatural, instantaneous healing, don't we? That's like everybody's favorite. When we ask for healing, when we cry out to God, we need a healing. We're not asking God, take us on a 10-year journey through a process of healing, a vulnerable, humiliating, embarrassing process. No, we're not asking for that. We want that supernatural right now in the name of, wait a minute. While those happen and we see them, 
Well, they happen here at this altar and they happen in greenhouses and they happen in, in, in one-on-ones with believers praying and believing and stepping out in faith. I will say that they most often don't result in us growing and learning from that injury. When God can make it go away like this, it's great, but it doesn't result in us receiving what the Lord desired as a result. The maturity, the growth, the, the, the transformation. In fact, usually the healing that we want is the healing that puts us back to the way we were before the injury. When we ask for a healing, let's be honest, that's what we want. But to the Lord, it's a process. He has a desired result that he's trying to achieve in us, and it's a process. The problem with the healing process, saints, is that we most often don't see it through. Most often, and I'm speaking for myself, okay, we pull ourselves out. We sidestep that process somewhere along the way because we decide, we make some decision that it's not happening um, at the pace or in the way that we want it to. And so we say, okay, I'm going to try something else. It's a process. Has anybody ever said to you, trust the process? Dana, you're laughing. When somebody says that to you, does it ever inspire within you um, this deep desire to punch them in the throat? Because that is my go-to move when somebody tells me to trust the process. I'm like, no, you don't get it. I, I... that process isn't for me. It's for somebody else. It's for someone who likes processes. I'm not a process guy. I'm a, I'm a when something breaks or something happens, I either fix it immediately or I don't stop making phone calls and sending text messages until it's done. That's my process. That's not the Lord's process. That's my process. So no, I don't trust the process. And there have been times in my life when the Lord had me in a healing process that would have resulted in in a scar that would have made me stronger in that place than I was to begin with. Scientifically, medically speaking, anatomically speaking, that's what a scar is. If you have any scars on your body, you know that that skin's a little bit tougher there, a little bit less vulnerable, a little bit less susceptible to an injury that brought it about to begin with. That's what the Lord wants for us. Scars are the, way, are the body's way of healing stronger. And that's what the Lord wants for us. He wants us to heal stronger. We live in a world that glorifies wounds, but despises scars. And so what, what that does for us is we, we start to get comfortable with wounds. When we sidestep that process, when we pull ourselves out, we say, okay, I'm going to figure this wound out another way and then come to find out we can't figure it out another way because there isn't another way. We can numb that pain. We can mask that problem. We can deny that problem or convince ourselves that it's not there. But that wound is left unattended. It's left to the elements of the world. And there have been seasons in my life when the Lord's had me on a track to to be healed and I sidestepped the process And years go by with wounds, wounds that I learn how to live with. 
until I'll be humble enough to step back in the process. And then in the grace of the Lord, he puts us back on the track. Sometimes those wounds have to be cleaned out at that point because they're full of stuff and they're infected and they're gangrenous and they smell. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just trying to get somewhere and I want y'all to know where we're going. But we live in a world, I'm going to say it again, that glorifies wounds but despises scars. We live in a world that teaches us how to become an expert in victimship. We love it. We, we get the most out of this life in this world. We get the most when we play the victim. And so we start to get comfortable in our wounds. We start to get comfortable in our incapacities, in our inabilities. We start to get comfortable in these things that God never intended for us. And we start to build a life around the handout. What can we get someone else to do for us? And, and saints, when we do come to a place of actually overcoming, of actually being stronger, the world despises that. Because the world doesn't have the one who completes the healing process. The church has the one who completes the healing process. And so when the world looks at scars, they say, there's somebody that thinks they're too good. There's somebody that, that, that feels like they can do it on their own. There's somebody when really we know what it takes to make a scar. It takes submission. It takes surrender. But scars, saint, are not a story of defeat. They're a story of defiance. And I want you to get that this morning. Because oftentimes we look at scars and, and there's a trigger in our mind, whether that's our own scars, whether that's someone else's scars, we hear their story, we hear their trauma, we, we think of our own crises over the years. And our mind goes to pity. Our mind goes to, to, to um, uh, self-pity or self-sabotage. We, we think, well, this is a pattern. This is, this is uh, a cycle. In fact, I would challenge you this morning and ask this. When you see a picture of the hands and feet of Jesus, when you see a picture and, and those scars are visible and that, that wound in his side or those thorns on his brow, what does it inspire in us? Most often, guilt. Most often, pity. Most often, we look at that and we see Jesus defeated. But that's not what heaven saw. And, and I want to encourage us to begin to see with heaven's eyes. Because when heaven sees scars, they don't see defeat. They see defiance. And here was a lamb that against all odds defied the laws, the rules. Broke the game for us. Your scars aren't a story of defeat either. You're still alive. You're still here. So this whole matter actually started 700 years prior in Isaiah chapter 49. And uh, you can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to because I'm going to read it and uh, somebody's going to put it up on the screen for you. Isaiah chapter 49 in verse 15, there is a, there's an interesting prophecy 
And I want to, I want to read it to you. We preached on this uh, seven, eight months ago or so. But it says this. Now, this is in the context of Israel. Um, they're in exile. They've been taken into captivity. They're in Babylon. And Israel is just uh, uh, in a world of self-pity. They're just feeling sorry for themselves um, because of the state they're in. They know they brought it on themselves, um, but they're, they're kind of at a loss for what to do next because they feel forgotten. Has anybody ever felt that way? Forgotten. Forgotten by God or just forgotten by your family. Or maybe you literally were forgotten by your family and they like left somewhere without you. But either way, these are scars and the Lord's going to do something with them this morning. Isaiah 49, verse 15 says, Never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child she's born? But even if that were possible, I, the Lord, would never forget you. See, I have inscribed you in the palms of my hands. A more literal translation is, I have engraved you. Some of your Bibles say name there, but it's not actually name it's, it's Israel, it's Zion, it's Jerusalem. I have inscribed you, engraved you in the palms of my hands 700 years before the crucifixion would take place. Heaven saw these scars. He says he won't forget us, saints. And to prove it, he engraves us on his hands. As sailors and soldiers and cellmates throughout history would tattoo the names of each other's loved ones on each other's hands. Why? Because the hand is the seat of strength. The hand is always in front of you. Its work is always before you. Anything you reach for, anything you write or sign, every door you open and hand you shake, you're reminded of your love. Your love, the one who waits for you the one who you can't wait to get back to. It's probably the best place to have something written down so you would never forget it. Anybody, you know, when you meet somebody, you write their number on your hand? No? Nobody does that anymore? Because everybody has cell phones now. <laughs> remember back in the day before cell phones? And it was like, you meet, I, gotta, I, I gotta remember this. Where did you write it? Right here, on your hand. And then it's like washing off. You know what I'm saying? Then you're like, oh, crap. And then you start calling that number with all the numbers missing. Like just go through one and then the number two and then the number three. And then the shoot, I knew I shouldn't have gotten that drink from the gas station. It's probably the best place to have something written so you could never forget it. And that's where the Lord puts us. Historically, there was a practice among Jews, where a small picture of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem would be etched into a piece of wood, and then its outline, like a stamp, would be transferred over to the hand. And with two needles bound together, repeatedly dipped in ink, small punctures would be made following that outline of the temple. And when the needlework was finished, the area on the hand was washed in wine. And what was left was a tattoo of the temple of God, unforgettably, indelibly, and always in front of the one whose hand received it. So whether or not you were able to make a pilgrimage back to the Holy Land, or you were able to go worship in Jerusalem and the temple was literally in front of you, 
that holy place where the presence of God once resided was forever and ever before you on your hand. Sounds devout, doesn't it? Super devout. I know back when we were doing tattoos in the lobby here, only a few people were able to get the full HPC logo. (laughs) They got the storefront in Seekonk and then we moved and it's like, what now? Am I supposed to go back and get this fixed? Few people could could be that devout and and most of them didn't have any room left after the Marked Men weekend. (laughs) So, yes, It sounds super devout, but the only problem with this picture, the only issue with this tattoo is that it wasn't actually the temple the Lord had in mind. It was a temple that he was blessed to have. It was the temple that was on David's heart when he designed it. It was was the temple that was on the blueprints when Solomon built it. It was the temple that just blessed the Lord to no end that someone was thinking about where he would live, where he would reside. And it was a temple to the rest of the world as it became one of the seven wonders of the ancient globe. And yet it was never the temple that he wanted. You see, the temple he wanted was us. And so we're the picture imprinted on his hands. These nail scars, saints, these nail scars are not just the remnant of an execution that didn't stick. They're the remnant of a love story that did and will forever. You don't think he could have left those scars behind with his grave clothes? Of course he could have. But this was the flesh and blood fulfillment of a prophetic promise made 700 years earlier. These scars are now the indelible picture of the bride he longs for, the one he loved even unto death and the one he's coming back for. These marks, saints, are a picture of you. Our scars, our scars, most often our scars are not love stories. Sometimes they are. Love stories gone wrong. (laughs) Our scars can either prove that we've had a hard life or they can prove that life's just had a hard time trying to kill us. (laughs) But either way, they most certainly prove that we are loved way too much to ever be forgotten. And these scars show up again in the revelation written by John while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos in his silence and solitude in his, in his own serving out of his sentence for his faith. He's out on this island, and as he grows closer and closer to the Lord, which is, tends to be what happens when everything else is stripped out of our lives. And it's funny, because over the years, I remember we went through this wave, and I thought it was just like a short season, then it turned out to be like it, what God wanted for our church. And and people would come in and, you know, they'd be there sometimes six days, sometimes six months. But people would come up to me and it started to become this pattern. They would say, Zach, I love this church, but here's the deal. Ever since I've been here, my life has just fallen apart. Anybody? And, and I, wanna, I want to like issue some sort of, see, there's somebody right there. 
and I want to issue like a formal apology, except that I brought it before the Lord. And I remember there was, there was somebody in the back of the, the Morningstar building in, in Seekonk. And there was like, everybody had left. It was kind of like after church one day and somebody had come in and um, we're just a few feet from the door. And they're like, man, the word is stripped. I am being stripped of everything. I am being stripped of everything. Every relationship, I lost my job. It's like my house. It's like everything that I've had, it just feels like it's just in one season being taken away from me. And um, I remember around that time, a missionary had come in um, from like Burma or somewhere terrible. And she said, and she said, God, she, God had done so much crazy stuff in her life. You remember um, Christine, what was her name? Anyway, Christine. Yeah, it was Christine. Her name, Christine. She was from Bur- Burgun- Bur- Burgundy? Burundi. Burundi. Anyway, she's up in the front. And she's talking about like babies dying in her arms and sometimes she can pray over them and the Lord supernaturally brings them back to life and sometimes they don't. And she was healed herself. It was just crazy. She's telling these story after story and she said she's in a village after um, this crazy just genocide had wiped through there and a man had made it out alive but his whole family had been killed in front of him. Not a good Easter story until this. She says, are you all right? And he said, yeah. He said, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. That coming from that man meant a little bit more than it is coming from me. That's why you needed the context. But saints, I watched the stripping process. I watched people have every sense of security and stability taken from them for one reason so that we'll all come to the conclusion that Jesus is all we need, that he's all we need. Because it's in those moments when revelation becomes the most pure and the most refined. It's in those moments. It's in those exiled Patmos seasons of our lives when the Lord has deeper access to us. And it was in this place where John sees heaven and records this in chapter 5. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or underneath the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. Verse 5 says, But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing Between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. 
he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. I read this, I've read it many times. But as I was doing some research on these scars, there was one writer who points out that when John sees the lamb, the first thing he takes note of, the first description of this lamb before the seven horns, before, before anything else, he sees the appearance of one who's been slain. He sees the scars. And I read this and I think, so these scars, they weren't just there 700 years before the crucifixion and they weren't just there when Jesus came out of the grave to prove to his disciples who he was. These scars are there for eternity. These scars are there forever. You see, I know we like to think and we read and hear and we interpret it in certain ways that heaven's just going to be, you know, la-la land and, and it's all going to be like cupcakes and rainbows. But in truth, there's a lot of, of graphic imagery around the throne concerning the sacrifice from, from the songs being sung. Holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain. <laughs> That's a rated R song, Okay. To the robe he wears dipped in blood. The imagery of Christ's sacrifice is all over heaven. And apparently even these scars make it. And when Jesus comes forward revealing these scars, I believe as he stretched out his hand to take that scroll from the Father, the qualifying marks were there imprinted. This was something no one else could do. Because no one else bore these marks. The revelation of God, saints, the revelation of God could not be fulfilled until the scroll was opened. If you read on, it had to be opened one seal at a time. And while much of, of what is recorded following the opening of each seal is the judgment of God being poured out on the earth, there are actually two sides to this scroll. Is anybody grateful that there's another side to this story about judgment? There's another side to it in there. It's interesting. The reason, why, the reason why there wouldn't be writing on two sides of a scroll, especially one that was sealed up, is because you can actually read what's written while the scroll is sealed up. There's like portions of it that are exposed on the exterior. It would, be like, it would be like somebody writing you like a very personal private letter and like writing the, the postscript on the outside of the envelope. 
And so the fact that this scroll has writing on both sides tells me a couple of things. Number one, that there was a portion of this that was going to happen, whether someone could open it or not. There is a portion of this that is exposed. There's a portion of what's written here. There's a portion of the revelation. And I believe that the judgment of God was coming one way or the other. But when one came up with the wounds that qualified them to begin to open this sealed scroll, it was what was written on the inside that I'm interested about. We don't see scrolls with seven seals anywhere else in scripture that I know of. But in excavations around the city of Jericho, dating back to 400 years uh, B.C., a seven-sealed scroll was uncovered. And in it, fascinatingly enough, was found the exact text of an act of ransom to free a slave. The price that had to be paid. And how the business transaction was going to go down. How, how the ransom would remove this individual from the bondage that they were in and bring them back to a place of freedom. While we're not given much detailed information about what's actually recorded in this scroll, what I can tell you is that it had to be opened by nail-scarred hands. Hands that could prove a purchase was made for those whose names were written on the other side of this whole judgment thing. Names of people who are no longer slaves to sin but who've been set free by the ransom Jesus paid. Would you stand with me this morning, saints? You see, these scars on Jesus' hands last forever because they prove to the rest of heaven that our sins have been paid for, that the fate of this world is not the destiny of those who walk with the Lamb. So what does that mean for your scars? What does that mean for all the stories of your trauma? Of your issues? Of your trials? Your failures? Your crosses and losses and sorrows? What it means is that the Lord is in the business of healing. And right now, at this point, usually we say, hey, if you've never asked Jesus into your heart, you need to do that. Maybe we'll have a separate altar call for believers, but for this morning, I'm gonna group everybody together because we all need healing. We're just at different places in the process. We all need healing. Every one of us in our human nature, we sidestep the process. Every one of us ha have, have come to the conclusion that in some way, shape, or form, whether you, you've never heard the name Jesus before, you've never set foot in a church before, or maybe you've walked with him for decades, every one of us we come to places in our lives where we believe that we know what's better. We know how to get this healing thing done. 
And so the, the most important thing to understand here, saints, is that Jesus, even in this act, teaches us how to have scars. Teaches us that these are not uh, stories of, of, of him being the victim. These scars are not stories of, of, uh, that he's gonna cling to, that he's gonna hold on to for the sake of making sure that everybody feels sorry for him and that, and that everybody meets his needs. No, no, no. These scars for him and for us are stories not of defeat, but of defiance. And I believe that for many of us in this room this morning, the Lord is calling you out of that seat of casualty and into the place of conqueror. Wounds make us casualties. Scars make us conquerors. So if you're in here this morning and you'd say, Zach, yeah, I've got some wounds. I've got some wounds. And, and, and maybe I can identify where the process of healing started. And maybe I, can, maybe I can even identify where it stopped because I pulled myself away. You might say, Zach, that healing never really got started. In fact, I'm still in a place of being wounded. No matter where you're at, the Lord overcame it all for you no matter where you're at, no matter how, how unqualified or, or unrighteous or unworthy you feel, it's your face on his hands. It's your image. You're the temple that he desires to fill with his spirit. You're the house. If you're in here and you need healing, step out of your seat and meet me down here at this altar this morning. somebody in here too this morning maybe a few somebodies and maybe you don't feel like those wounds affect you anymore you feel like you're healed up you're scarred up but what those scars have done is that they've actually made you callous well Zach I'm supposed to be tougher right I'm supposed to be less sensitive I'm supposed to be less vulnerable right? The Lord still says, I'm taking hearts of stone and turning them into hearts of flesh. He still needs us sensitive. He still needs us vulnerable, but vulnerable to him. And you're in here this morning and you say, I haven't actually felt him in a while. I haven't actually heard his voice or sensed his spirit in me in a while. There's something interesting about scars. See, you can, you can identify that a thing is a person from a long ways away. You can kind of make out the outline of like the head and arms and legs. 
It's a body. Oh, it's starting to come into view. You can see a person from a long ways away, but to see their scars, you've got to be close. You've got to be real close. And I want you to know this morning that Jesus invites you, as he did Thomas, close enough to touch him. Close enough to get a hold of him. Close enough to see yourself in his hands. And if that's you this morning and you'd say, yeah, these scars, these hard places, they need to be turned into tools for the Lord. These scars, instead of making me less sensitive, they need to make me more prone to share how this healing process has happened. And this may be the cusp. This may be the threshold of a season of fruitfulness for you, of ministry for you, where those scars, the Lord says, hey, I want to use your scars the way I use Jesus's scars. And the Father says, would you let me begin to show your story? Would you let me begin to show what it is that's written in your life? the healing process that I brought to the day of completion. If that's you, would you step out of your seat as well and join me down here at this altar? Here in just a minute, I'm gonna invite Pastor John and our prayer team uh, to, to move in around and behind this group. And what they're going to do, these are people I know and I love and I trust. What they're going to do is, is they're going to ask you if there's any part of your story that you feel is important to share with them. And if there is, please do. And if you don't feel like sharing that, that's 100% fine as well. But we want to pray with you this morning. If there's anybody down here and you haven't begun this journey of healing yet, because that's what knowing Jesus is. It's where the healing starts. And if that hasn't begun yet with you, then maybe it's time for an introduction to the one who heals. But wherever you're at on this path, we wanna come alongside you. We wanna walk with you. We wanna pray with you. And we wanna see this thing brought through to the day of completion. So Pastor John and a prayer team, ask you guys just to go ahead and move in around this group. And as you do, let's worship. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song. Yes, yes. Of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone. And I'm no longer a slave to fear. Tell the Lord this morning. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I got this sense last night and hasn't left me and so I'm going to add this to the party if you're in here and you can't even think about your own wounds because 
the enemy has you so wrapped up in the ways that you've wounded others. All you see, you can't even think about yourself and what needs to be healed and what needs to be treated and what scars and what's still open because you're so consumed with guilt or shame or regret about ways that somewhere, maybe in the ancient history of your life, you hurt somebody else. Maybe it was your parents, or maybe it was your kids, or maybe it was a a, a spouse or an ex-spouse. But I want you to know that, listen, the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. He has made it his profession to bring accusations against us. And today, this isn't about trying to justify mistakes that we've made. It's not about trying to excuse ourselves, even from the consequences of those mistakes. But today, we need to understand that all of that went to the cross with Jesus. All of that went to the cross with Jesus. All of that went into the grave, and not one bit of it came out. Every accusation, every insinuation, everything that the world or or the enemy has put on you is left behind in that grave, in that tomb. And so if you're in here this morning, the Lord wants to bring that regret, that, uh, that fear that you will never outlive the mistakes that you've made. He wants to pull all of that stuff off of you so that the healing process can begin again. If that, is that anybody in here? If that's you, would you step out? Would you join me down here? I want to pray for you. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay. Thank you, Lord. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Your love has called my name. I've been born again into your family. Your blood flows through my legs. Come on, sing it out, sir. Say, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child. Listen, we're going to continue to keep these altars open. It's not too late to come down if you want to spend some time down here, get some prayer. Um, but for the rest of you, have the best Easter of your entire lives, okay? God bless you. Go in peace. We'll see you next week, okay? This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.